first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Bishop Zarama for his permission for us to, to be here with you and to pray and to speak with you this morning. Also, Monsignor Ingham for his very kind welcome. And I'd like to thank James Cornicelli and all those associated with the Radix group for welcoming us, for supporting us, for helping us to, uh, to be here with you and to bring you the spirituality of our patron saint, St. Francis de Sales, which is the passion and the joy of our priestly lives. And let's begin with a prayer. I invite you to stand. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Most sacred heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, St. Francis de Sales, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Benedict, St. Joseph. Holy God, we praise thy name. Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. If anyone needs a seat, we have plenty of seats here in the front row. You're all good Catholics. The front row is quasi empty. But please feel free. Don't be shy. You're among friends and brothers here. Well, it's an honor and a joy to be here with you today. And I'm grateful for the invitation to speak to you about the most blessed Trinity. The Most Blessed Trinity as the source and the model for family life. Too often in understanding the truths of our faith, we want to be like the world, and we want to adopt the spirit of the modern world. But no, as Catholics, to understand divine truths which transcend us, we must look to God, and we must look to the tradition of our Catholic faith and our church to understand the spirit the spirit with which we must understand the realities of our modern world. So we must practice our faith in a traditional way. And to remind ourselves of the seriousness of what is at stake in our homes and families, I want to start with a powerful quote from Sister Lucia Fatima. Sister Lucia once wrote, A time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdom of Christ and Satan, that battle will be over. End of quote. 
And Sister Lucia wrote this in the early 1980s in a letter to then Monsignor Carlo Cafara. And he went on to become Cardinal Carlo Cafara, the late Archbishop of Bologna, Italy. And he was also the founding president of the pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family. And in 2017, just a few months before he died, on the occasion of the centennial of Fatima, Cardinal Cafara gave a talk in Rome in which he explained what Sister Lucia had written to him. Remember her words, a time will come when the decisive battle between the kingdom of God and Satan will be over marriage and the family. And the Cardinal added, what Sister Lucia wrote to me years ago is being fulfilled today. So we must not forget this admonition. The family is the spiritual battleground today between the forces of God's lights and the demonic darkness. And it's up to every one of us in this room to side with Christ, 100%, and decide with Christ for the spiritual survival of our family in order to defend our families from evil and to promote all that is good, true, and beautiful in their lives. We know by faith that Christ has already won the victory over evil. We know that the story has a happy ending because Christ rose again the third day and he will come again in glory and majesty to crush evil once and for all at that providential moment that he has preordained from all eternity. So Satan cannot get at God directly. So the devil tries to destroy God's image, God's image in men, women, and children. The devil tries to twist God's plan for creation, to turn that plan upside down in order to make a new order of anti-creation, an upside-down world. That's what we see today, men becoming women and women becoming men, the transgender ideology, which is being rammed down our throats by the political powers that be. They're trying to redefine marriage in a manner which excludes any possibility of life and offspring as the true purpose of marriage. Indeed, as Sister Lucia said, the final battleground for our human civilization is the family. So to protect all that we hold sacred and dear and all that is good in the world that we know, God's beautiful order of creation in our society and to safeguard the family, to make our families holy and happy in a difficult world, we need to go to the Holy Trinity. We need to see how the human family is the icon, the image of the Holy Trinity in our world. What we're going to say now is a little abstract for a moment, perhaps, but it's most crucial, most crucial because the Holy Trinity is the fundamental truth, which is the underlying basis for our civilization as we know it. God is one. God is not alone or solitary, but God is a communion of persons. 
persons with a capital P. God is the most holy trinity, an eternal communion of three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this is the central mystery of the Catholic faith. Think of St. Patrick, who converted Ireland with the Trinitarian analogy of the shamrock, three loaves and one clover. God is an eternal unity of three distinct divine persons, each of whom is holy and substantively God. They are consubstantial and equal to each other. If we fully understood that truth, my friends, we would die of joy. The three persons of the Holy Trinity are relational to one another in two internal divine processions. We have the Father eternally, who generates the Son, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. The one Godhead is an interrelational being of three persons. In a word, we can say from our, our human perspective that God is a family. Man is ontologically, that is, man and his, his very being of man is created in the image of the one Trinitarian God. And as God is, as we said from our perspective, God is a family, so is man created in God's image as a relational being made for families. We're not lone rangers. We are called to be together in this interpersonal communion. Remember, after God creates Adam in Genesis, he says it is not good that man is alone. And with that, God creates Eve, the first woman, so that man cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. This is the primordial sacrament of marriage. And marriage is Trinitarian by nature. Think about it. Husband and wife become a communion of persons in the natural order where the two become one. Husband and wife reflect the communion of persons in the Godhead, in the heavenly order. The, the perfect self-knowledge of the Father eternally begets the second person, the Son. And from the perfect self-offering of will, from the, from the mutual love between the Father and the Son, proceeds the third divine person, the Holy Ghost. So, we could say in an infinitely imperfect but analogous way, husband and wife come together in the mutual self-offering of love, consummated in the marital act of union, and from that union, there is conceived a third independent being, a child. A child is born as the fruit of that union between husband and wife. And there we see a faint image that from the mutual love of the Father and the Son comes forth the Holy Ghost. So there are some obvious and profound dissimilarities, but... The human family is our closest imitation of Trinitarian relations within the natural realm. Indeed, the family is this icon, this visible image of the Holy Trinity in our created world.
Think about that. And all of us who are called to be husbands and fathers, we all participate in that image, that visible image of the Holy Trinity in our world. That's profound. That's really beautiful. And that is what God has gifted us in our vocation. The Trinitarian image is reflected in our families. The family, the, the icon of Trinitarian life. The Christian family is a sign, an image of the communion of the Father and the Son in the Holy Ghost. So the family is a, is a down-to-earth model, down-to-earth model of the relationships within the Trinity. Living with a husband or wife and children, well, this necessarily draws us out from ourselves. Right? And marriage and family life challenges our pride and our selfishness. Family life forces us to minimize ourselves for the sake of others. Marriage pushes us to focus on someone else, not just for our own well-being. Marriage challenges us in our flesh and blood relationships to be holy as God is holy. And this family is the foundational building block of the greater church and of the society of the whole. The family was part of God's plan for humanity from the beginning. God created humanity to be family. And that's why the second person of the Blessed Trinity, Jesus himself, incarnated what was made incarnate into a family in order to highlight the family's institution. Jesus lived in a family to personally sanctify the family, to make it holy, and to help us to understand something of God's wisdom and love in the Holy Trinity. Now, of course, you know better than me, living a, a self-sacrificial marriage and complete self-offering to family, well, that's easier said than done. Marriage and parenthood are hard work, and our selfish pride, our egocentric desires get in the way. And overcoming these requires a lifetime of tiny steps to incre incrementally grow in holiness and virtue. It takes a whole lifetime of tiny steps, step by step. It's difficult to reflect at times that, that, that Trinitarian love and vision. It's hard to think about that amidst the exhaustion of, of crying babies and soiled diapers and sibling squabbles, spousal arguments, stressful jobs. There's you know, washing dishes, baskets of laundry, organizing the vehicles, who goes where, when. But this is all part, part of our daily cross. Our daily cross to take up and to follow Jesus by denying ourselves and serving others, just as he did before us. So we should remember that the supernatural spirit of God, God works in the ordinary and the mundane activities of our everyday lives. The family is meant to be holy. Reflecting here and now, in, in time and in space, the eternal beauty of the Trinity's relationships. So we need to have that complete vision to see the extraordinary truths 
even in the ordinary things of our lives. Peace and prosperity will reign in our homes if the divine life of the Most Holy Trinity becomes the model for parents and in family life. So how can fathers and mothers become, in their own little way, living reflections of the Most Holy Trinity in the eyes of their children? Wow, that's setting the bar pretty high, isn't it? How can we, ordinary men as we are, how can we be living reflections of the Most Holy Trinity in the eyes of our children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, and the young people for whom we may be mentors and examples? Well, God the Father has established the Father as the head of the family. And modern media seeks to destroy the family by attacking the head. How many times in movies and films and cartoons for decades now? How many times the father is portrayed as a fool? And when we allow too much media into our homes, well, then we are risking the good formation we are giving our children. And we're being undermined by me, the media and how media portrays fatherhood. However, the truth is that fathers are meant to be heroes, heroes of virtue. Heroes by doing the ordinary things of daily life, but doing them in an extraordinary way. That is, with great virtue. A father must always act as a leader. He's received that authority from God. And one day he will have to answer to God for how he used or abused that fatherly authority. So to make his authority respected, the father must be the first to practice what he preaches. It's one of the reasons why I wear a cassock every day. It's meant to remind me that I'm supposed to practice what I preach. Um, and I rely upon all your prayers for that. It's a tall order, but we must never ask anyone else to do that which we ourselves would not do. Children love to see in their father a man of strength and virtue. But if the father complains, if he yells and uses angry words, if the father is lazy, if he neglects his duties, or if through weakness he avoids all confrontation, and he never exercises any authority. Well, then how can the children be expected to obey and to respect him? If fathers don't step up to the plate, well then, they will make themselves irrelevant in the lives of their children. And often, we only realize that perhaps too late. So to be a good father, try to make your authority loved. And this can be done with, with honey, but not with vinegar. If the father teaches with an authority which is harsh and angry, the children will just tune him out. They won't, they won't want to listen. And if rules and habits, however good, are imposed by force on children, the children will become resentful, and in the end, they will be eager to walk off into the opposite extreme. We've all seen examples of that. So a father's good example will attract his children to the truth. The kids have to sense that it is good for them to be around you because you like to be with them. 
So let's compliment our children when they do good. When was the last time you gave a compliment to your, your adult children because they did something well? We should reward children when, they, when they've worked hard to reach goals. We should show them that we are proud when they do the right thing. Remember as a little boy, just a tap on the shoulder from my dad. Wow, that meant the world to me, and I felt so much taller because dad was proud of me. He didn't have to say anything. Just had to tap me on the shoulder and said, son, I'm proud of you. You're sitting still in your pew in church. That's good. We can um, entrust our kids with tasks to teach them a sense of responsibility. Show them that you have confidence in them. Make kids see that your authority will help them now to be better people for their mission as adults in the world tomorrow. You know, for kids, they always think the future being adult is far, far away. Well, by your questions and by making them think through the, con the future consequences of their current actions, you have to make them understand that that future of tomorrow, it starts today with the choices they make here and now. So to be, to be patient with our children, think often in your morning prayer about how deeply patient God our Father is with us. We are His spiritual sons, and God our Father is so patient with us. He's put up with our antics and our, and our, our foibles for so many years, hasn't He? Patiently correcting us, raising up us again when we fall. God our Father has been so patient with us that we ourselves must be patient with others. We have to be images of God's patience in our world. Ask for this patience each morning. If there's one thing you come away with today, it's the importance of morning prayer every morning to prepare yourself for the spiritual battle of that day. If you don't pray in the morning, gentlemen, you can already raise the white flag because you will have to surrender. You will be overrun by all the challenges, the tasks, the hardships of that day. So each morning, pray consistently for the virtues you don't have. Every morning, pray consistently for the virtues you don't have. And in time, you will grow into those virtues because you will have asked God for them again and again. Impatience is often frustration with the fact that individual family members can be so different from me. And I wish that everyone could be just like me. Wouldn't that be easier? Well, our sons, perhaps our daughters, they might resemble us. They might talk a little bit like us. But the fact is, they might fundamentally be very different people. So we must see them as they are and not as we would wish that they would be. We must take time, spend time with, with the children to understand who they are, their temperament, their character. And let's not impose ourselves on others. You can't change persons at the core, but you can try to influence them for the better. You can adapt the manner in which you try to lead them to where they should be. So by spending time with our godchildren, spending time with our, our grandsons and daughters, spending time with our nieces and nephews, we come to understand how they are, where they're coming from. 
And that will help us to take them more easily by the hand up to where they need to go. Methods need to be adjusted depending upon that young person, their temperament, how they work. That's not one size fits all. More firm discipline can work for young children. But then as they get older, we have to adapt how we talk to them. We talk to, when we talk to a boy who's seven years old, it's not the same as when he's 17. It's not the same when he's 27. Sometimes we're behind the times and, we, and we, we're talking to our, our, uh, our 17-year-olds as if they're seven-year-olds, etc. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So we have to learn how to adapt. As they get older, we have to, we have to need to use some persuasion. More patience to explain the why of things. Of course, to explain why means we will have had to done our homework before and reflect upon why things are the way they are. Why do we go to Sunday Mass? Why do we treat all women with respect and courtesy, etc.? Think through why and how we can explain that to the young ones in our own words. Have we done our homework and put the gears of our, of our mind to work to really understand in a down-to-earth way how we can explain that? It takes effort, but it's well worth it and will pay many dividends in time. Help the young ones to see the future consequences of this or that behavior. You know, son, um, you know, I know that you're you're a young adult now, but really think this through. If you make this decision, well, this or this could happen. Let's think this through together. From my own mistakes, well, I've learned this and this, and please benefit from, from my falls. Be patiently sit down with them and try to walk them through that process and realize that the ideal is not immediately within reach. We live in a microwave world. We hit a button and we get immediately what we want through technology, but it doesn't work that way in human relationships. So remember that the word patience comes from the Latin word passion, to suffer. We have to suffer in order to be patient. We have to bear with the kind of messy conversation sometimes we need to have in order to get people to where they need to be. But if we look to our Lord bearing his cross, we look to our sorrowful mother, we ask for that patience, it shall be granted to us. So the ideal is not immediately within reach, but move toward that ideal at the pace of the other persons around you, because each one is different. And the more you spend time with them, the more you will come to understand that. So we need to adapt to the persons in our care and our families, but also adapt to the circumstances of family life. Those circumstances are always changing. And so a father needs to, sometimes he needs to adapt the way he speaks and he, he fathers the family. Sometimes it's a skillful combination of a little bit of a, a little bit of threatening here. You know, it needs to be a little bit of holy fear there. Sometimes you have to coax a little bit. Oh, come on! You know, try to try to coax them along. Sometimes you need to be stern, like like a, a fatherly taskmaster. And then sometimes you have to really show that you're very devoted and that you're tender, that you care, you have a heart. You can suffer with what that, what that younger person is going through. 
It's important that we don't be too demanding. I always look to St. Benedict. He's one of our patron saints in the Institute of Christ the King, a father abbot for so many monks in the monastery. He's not too demanding during the, during the grape harvest. He allows the, the monks to have uh, some extra wine during that time so they have the strength to go through the harvest. We must be careful not to impose burdens which depress others. When we delegate something to someone, we have to kind of help them shoulder the burden a little bit so, so they can get started. We can't just delegate that and walk away and think, well, let them figure it out. So don't ask others to do what you yourself are not willing to do. So there needs to be a spirit of moderation. A spirit of moderation. This is a sign of true zeal. If we're excessive in how we try to direct others each day, if we're too demanding in our expectations of others, and if we expect immediate progress without giving them the time they need to improve, that's a sign that our zeal may be inspired by personal reasons of pride rather than by pure love of God. So our work is, is to live the truth, but always in charity, and to make that truth attractive by the loving way with which we teach it and we exemplify that truth in daily life. And if you pray, if you take the time with God, you will come to understand how that is so. Now, just as God in his providence, he foresees the needs of his creatures. He provides for all of them. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, each and every one of us. God, in his providence, he, he provides for all of our needs. So it's the father's role to be attentive to the needs of wife and children. That is our psychological weakness. All of us. Men, we tend to be inattentive. We don't pay enough attention. We get easily distracted. Well, the father needs insight, which will help him distinguish the predominant character traits of each child. It's amazing how just two children can be so very different, and yet at times the same. But fundamentally, they can be very different. We need insight to determine how to train this child and that child in virtue, how to correct his or her faults in a way that, that, that they will truly understand. So to know the children inside and out, the father must listen. At the dinner table, what are they saying? What kind of little um, questions are they asking? What piques their interest? Sometimes you, you yourself have to ask questions, lead them along. Lead those children along little by little so you really understand by their responses what they need, what they like, how to get through to them. Fathers, grandfathers, godfathers, uncles, you have to take an active interest in each child, even if you're tired after a long day's work. Godfathers, when was the last time you connected with your godchildren? The last time you, you prayed with them? The last time you, you sent them a message on, the patrons, on their patron saint's feast day? Take an active interest. And fathers should know how to praise and reward the good. When was the last time we said, son, good job, very nice. Even for simply ordinary things. You know, you made your bed consistently for a week. That's good. 
That's what you're expected to do. It's nothing special, but it's a good step in the right direction. Keep up, keep it up like that. Do the simple things well, you'll be able to do the harder things well and even better. We have to know to develop in children a sense of duty. No, son, you didn't take the trash out. That lets the whole family down because it smells bad in the house. You know, your sisters, your mother want to throw things away and they can't because you didn't do your job and it's overflowing. You kind of let everybody down. You made everybody's life more difficult today. Think through. It might be a simple duty, but it's an important duty. And if you get this duty right, then tomorrow you'll be able to get more important duties right. So develop in them a sense of responsibility. Learn also how to awake a legitimate self-respect in a struggling child. Young men especially, they get teenage years, they can, they can struggle because they don't have confidence in themselves. When I was a young man, I remember I had a stuttering problem. I had to go to speech therapy for that. And I kind of understood I kind of lacked confidence in myself. I didn't, um, I, was, I was kind of self-conscious. Um, so we need to really awaken legitimate self-respect in a struggling child by placing confidence in him or her. I know you can do it, really. I've seen you do this and that before, so you can certainly do this. But we have to be there to say those words. And to say them, we have to first be attentive and knowing that they have to be said and how. And above all, the father must trust in divine providence, like St. Joseph. A year ago, we talked extensively about St. Joseph. He was rejected from the inns of Bethlehem. He was exiled in a foreign country in Egypt. He couldn't speak the language. He had to find a job. How many times maybe the child Jesus came to him and Joseph didn't have any bread to give the hungry Jesus. St. Joseph was always docile to God's will. And with trust, the father must always say yes to the sacrifices God is asking of him. If you say yes, then God will act and he will give his graces in abundance. So the father is the head of the family and the mother is the heart of the family. Now, I think it's helpful for us, even though there aren't really any ladies here in the room, I think it's helpful for us to understand the role of the mother in the family, the role of our wives, the role of women in the family. Mothers should love their children as God loves us. Mothers should love their children as God loves us. Now, St. Francis de Sales, he says that God has two sorts of love. There's an, there's an affectionate love. God indeed loves us with a tender love. But God also has a love which is called affective, with an E. That is a love which produces a certain good spiritual effect. For our good, sometimes God can deprive us of consolations. God may allow temptations and trials to come upon us. And these help us to grow into spiritual maturity. That's effective love. So a mother especially must have a healthy balance between affectionate love and effective love. There must be a balanced mixture of gentleness and firmness. And this means that the motherly love must not be overly sentimental. 
A mother must sometimes discipline the child or at least say no to the caprices of her child. And you, as the fathers, as the father, you are the leader. And so you must understand, again, this motherly role in family life. And you must encourage mothers to not give in to those caprices. A mother must be careful that the excesses of an affectionate heart do not get the better of right reason and prudence. A mother must value the supernatural good of her child above all else. It's good if, if the child is, gets good grades, does a fantastic piano recital, um, you know, has good friends, etc. Okay. But really the fundamental thing is that that child gets to heaven. That that child has a spiritual formation to be a holy man or woman in the world of tomorrow. That's the number one priority. So a mother must value the supernatural good of her child above all else. Just as God always treats us in a way which is best for our soul. God doesn't always give us what we want. But he never fails to give us what we need. As long as we are open and receptive to receiving it even if it's not according to our taste. So that a mother's love does not degenerate, mothers should often meditate on the Holy Ghost, the divine spirit of love. The Holy Ghost does not use force or constraint. No. The Holy Scripture says that the Spirit of God gently moves us with His inspirations. The Spirit of God disposes our hearts in the good through His suggestions. The Holy Ghost is like that, like that divine breeze that gently blows, blows us in the right direction. God never forces us to love Him, but God nudges us. God moves our hearts by the beauty of His truth and the attractive power of His goodness. Look at the beauty of nature, all of nature and, and all of its, the, the, the beautiful sunset, the beautiful ocean, the mountains, all of this moves us to say that we should love our Creator and to understand how God is joyful and God is the fountain of all goodness. So in the same way, fathers and mothers must know how to convince their children that the truth is a good thing for their soul. And parents must persuade the younger ones in the particular way which is effective for each child. A mother must love her children for God's sake and their sakes, and not for her own sake. Nor should a mother love her children for the sake of her self-image in the eyes of others. And dads, that's very true as well. We must not simply love our children for the sake of our own self-image in the eyes of our peers. A mother's love must not be overly controlling, weak in character, and their proper personalities will not be able to develop. I've seen a good number of young men who really never fully, really never fully developed as men. Uh, because the mothers were too strong when they were young. They didn't grow up to make their own decisions. They, they never struggled with any kind of projects, anything when they were young. The mother did things for them. They get older and they, they didn't fully develop. 
Because the mother's love was overly controlling because there's too much of her in it. Perfect motherly love is without self-will. Like the love of Mary for her son at the foot of the cross. That most tender of all mothers, she saw her son hated, crucified as a criminal. And she herself was berated and insulted as she stood there at the foot of her son's cross. And yet Mary accepted the Father's will for her son. And through the sacrificial love of the mother, the grief of her immaculate heart became fruitful for the spiritual good of souls. Now husbands and wives are their own greatest allies. Marriage is like, it's like a three-legged race. Like a three-legged race. And those, those wedding rings are like bands which, which bind husband and wife together. And the more and the better that you support one another in that three-legged race, the more you walk in step, well, the more your strengths make up the deficiencies in your partner and, and vice versa. And the more you work together in sync, then the further and the faster you will make progress in this three-legged race. But if you're not in sync, if you're going in different directions, well, you're going to fall flat. So how do we work together, husband and wife together, for the sake of the whole family? Let's look at a few general guidelines, kind of a, a practical code of daily living, so that we can treat our spouse as Christ, so that we can love our spouse as Christ. Well, it will come to you as no surprise that a marriage must be founded on a healthy spiritual life daily prayer, and the reception of the sacraments. That comes as no surprise, but what some couples overlook is that they should do it together as one couple and not as two individuals. Take time when you are alone as a couple to pray together, just the two of you, and to pray out loud. And if one is away traveling, there should be a certain prayer which you can both say every day at a distance. Couples should try to overcome, little by little, a, a shyness regarding speaking to each other about spiritual things. You know, sometimes one spouse is not fully able to surmount a personal difficulty in his or her life because he or she does not receive enough spiritual support from the other through prayer. So remember that the two are one. And you need to pray and sacrifice spiritually for each other for the sake of the whole. As a couple, you need to share spiritual ideas so that you can come to see the soul of the other person. Supernatural. Maybe you want to talk about a neat story you read in the life of a saint. Or you want to talk to your spouse about your favorite part of the Mass and why. What's your favorite decade of the Rosary? Uh, share the stories of your childhood days in church. Talk about why you like the artistic interior of a certain church. Uh, go on a mini pilgrimage, just the two of you, husband and wife. Visit a shrine. Pray the rosary together for your family, for your children. If you've had a falling out, well, go to the church together for confession. Stand side by side in the confessional line. Then you start over afterwards with a clean slate 
Because in the confessional, both have apologized to Christ. Christ present in the other. If you're faithful to God, you will be faithful to one another. Fidelity in marriage is built upon fidelity to prayer. I especially recommend, again, morning prayer. If you give spiritual support to your spouse, then together you will accomplish, or rather God will accomplish through you, so much more than you ever thought possible. One of the most important things in any relationship is communication. And that good communication means so much to our marriage. So really, um, you know, the two of you are one, but there's no communication to brainwaves, right? So you really got to be vocal. Share with one another your plans, your ideas. Don't just assume the other one knows. And, and also go to your spouse for, their, um, for her opinions about particular things. You may be over-exaggerating, or you may be underestimating something. So God gave you a spouse to have a more objective view on the reality of life. So the humble good sense to ask questions of your spouse, to ask for advice, to ask their point of view. That's humility. Unilateral decisions never work well in a marriage. And remember to compliment your spouse. Take pride in your spouse's work. Compliment them. Appreciate how hard she is working for you. Be grateful for her attempts to take care of you. Even if they don't always succeed, well, she tried. So compliment her. Don't complain, but compliment and encourage her. And actions speak louder than words. Positive forms of communication means that you show up on time, that you say, I'm sorry. We also have to be careful not to brood or indulge in self-pity. Oh, um, she doesn't see how I'm suffering. Well, don't brood or salt. That's just wounded pride. But, but speak up in a straightforward, good way. Communication builds learning. And as you learn about one another, you can grow to love one another more. So go the extra mile for your spouse. Actions speak louder than words. That's a positive way to communicate. And we can disagree, period, it's a fact of life, but you can choose to not disagree in a negative way. We have to distinguish between the person who is our spouse and the things that we disagree on, the viewpoint of the opinion. So don't use that argument as a personal attack on your, on your spouse. Address his or her point of view, but don't go after the person. Oh, you are so this, or you are so that, no. Your behavior is coming across to me like this. Do you realize that? Are you aware of that? So we have to be careful not to use insults or insinuate that our spouse is somehow bad or, or stupid just because they don't agree with us. When you hurt your spouse, you hurt yourself. You hurt Christ because the two of you are one flesh in Christ. To beware of, of jealousy as well in a marriage in any kind of relationship. St. Francis de Sales, he tells us, it's a sorry kind of friendship which seeks to strengthen itself by jealousy. So don't hold grudges. Your spouse can lose the self-confidence necessary to improve herself. 
you hold grudges, you keep that person down, and she will never be able to rise up to your expectation. And every day, put yourself in your spouse's shoes. Give your spouse the benefit of the doubt. Don't just accuse her of something until you've heard the whole story directly from her mouth. Trust can only develop if you give your spouse the benefit of the doubt in a positive way. Don't be gullible, but be good to your spouse. False accusations are very hurtful to the relationship. So the spouse is innocent until proven guilty. And don't expect too much from the other. You know, if we nag, we can make our spouse feel that, well, she can never measure up to our expectations and she never will. So let's not, let's not try to change her into somebody else now that, now that you're married. But we have to learn to accept our spouses and that way they, our spouse can accept us. When you mutually accept one another, then you can try to build up each other for the better, working for each other's sanctification and encouraging one another. And finally, we have to, the best parents teach through example. Remember that great quote of St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. So to be a good Catholic parent, you don't need to be articulate. You don't need to make always speeches. But St. Francis de Sales would say, be who you are, but be it in the best way possible. Through prayer and through grace, be a good example to others. And we do that best by, by radiating, radiating Christ. There's a beautiful, um, there's a beautiful image, perhaps you've seen, of the holy name of Jesus, the IHS, and the rays coming out like sunshine around it. We find that in Italy, where our mother house is located. The IHS, the holy name of Jesus, and these rays coming out from it. To illustrate that, there's a beautiful fable, which I'll tell you just in conclusion, a fable from Aesop about the wind and the sun. The wind and the sun were disputing which was the stronger. And suddenly they saw a traveler coming down the road. And the sun said, I see a way to decide our dispute, Mr. Wind. Whichever of us can cause that traveler to take off his cloak shall be regarded as the stronger. And Mr. Wind, I'll let you begin. So the sun retired behind a cloud. And the wind began to blow as hard as it could upon the traveler. But the harder that the wind blew, the more closely did the traveler wrap his cloak around him, till at last the wind gave up in despair and was huffing and puffing. Then the sun came out and shone in all of his glory upon the traveler, who soon found it too hot to walk with his cloak on. And he took off his cloak because of the radiation of that sun. The moral, kindness is more effective than severity. And if anyone can teach us to radiate Christ to others, it's St. Francis de Sales. I encourage you to pick up the introduction to the devout life. There's a lot of good little books you can carry around with you with short quotes, short chapters, the writings of St. Francis de Sales. And you can learn, you can learn from him to make your life holier so that you can be happier and you can attract other people to holiness by the joy and the peace 
that Christ will give you in your spiritual life. So don't be discouraged. No family is perfect. And tragically, we need only to look at the current state of fractured families and marriages today to see the greater challenges. We see families are riddled with every type of pain and suffering and dysfunction and, and even dissolution. That Trinitarian image in many modern families is badly disfigured. But God has not left us orphans. God has left us the family of the church. We are all brothers and sisters in the communion of the saints. God's given us the sacraments which can heal and make us whole again. So even though our marriages and our families may be broken, we have the family of the church. Let's hold on to that family. And thus we can receive the spiritual support and strength we need to try to inject new life in our own personal families. And so, our families are the closest natural approximation to the spiritual communion of persons in the Trinity. And let us go to Mary so we can understand that. Mary. Mary, Our Lady of the Trinity. She is the one who can help us every step in our lives and our families. So in our daily rosary and devotions to Mary, let's ask for the graces we need to be faithful to our vocations so that we can live in communion with each other in our marriages, in our families, in our church, serving Christ in the person of our neighbor with mutual self-sacrifice and life-giving love in imitation of the Most Holy Trinity. And then one day, we and our children and all of our, all of our brothers and sisters in the church, we will have the eternal joy to contemplate the Most Holy Trinity face-to-face, -face, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.